All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 Create a word right now for the second hour. It can be any word. It can be um, cat. It can be dog. It can be ball. I'm surprised. Surprised. So for the live attendance audience, you can leave at this point or you can stay, but we're going to the second hour. And I'm just going to go through the questions as they are um, coming up in order. So I'm not going to go by like topic. They're just going to be gone in order, done in order. So the first question at 204 uh, came, should sensory or stim type toys be used as a strong reinforcer when social reinforcers work, but not be, but may not be as strong as a stim toy? Again, this is an empirical question. Um, and we need to be paying attention to what well-conducted research tells us about answering this question. One of the things that we're seeing is that um, you have to just differentiate between the very short-term effect and versus what's the longer term picture that we're striving for. So there may, it may well turn out that we would be better off using not necessarily the top level, uh, most powerful reinforcers, and we might be better off using moderately effective reinforcers in the moment if that allows us and help the individual get to a better place in their life six months, 12 months, five years down the road. If we stick with the currently most predominant reinforcers, we'd probably be using food reinforcers all day long, okay? And we might be able to demonstrate higher rates of responding within that next few minutes. But look at the long-term picture. How are we gonna build these social repertoires if we're not actively um, engaged in, in, in establishing that? The analysis part in behavior analysis is really critical. And to me, part of that analytic part is you look at a situation like use of STEM reinforcers or food reinforcers, and you look at the long-term, as John said, what are the advantages and disadvantages? And we look at that, and we don't just look in the moment. I was just doing a training with one of our staff yesterday where they were using food reinforcers, and it was powerful. And the staff was hooked on using it. And it's like, I get it. It really did make a difference. But I asked her to look at what long-term would happen if she continued down that road? What are the disadvantages? What are the advantages? And it's a hypothesis and you test it. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. And so whether stim toys or food reinforces, we need to look at the big picture. Yep. Uh, this is a, just a comment. We are continuing to see families seize ABA because of what they've read on Facebook. Yes, uh, we see it too. That's pretty sad for us. 
Uh, I also just want to say professionals too. I can't tell you how many times we've gone into school districts as an example who absolutely uh, hate ABA because of what they've read or what they've heard. And then we always have to ask, okay, what's your conception of ABA? And when they tell us, it's like, I get it. I hate it too. If that's ABA, I don't like it. But let's talk about what good ABA can look like. Okay, the next one was, can you please define misinformation? The misinformation are statements that are overgeneralizations, are not factually correct, and could be leading uh, for some kind of result that you're wanting to get. So whether it's to stop ABA from occurring or people seeking services. Anyone want to add to that since I brought that one up? I think we can make a distinction between disinformation and misinformation. I think misinformation can happen for innocent reasons, simply just a lack of understanding, or sometimes it comes down to a difference of interpretation of certain research findings. Disinformation is a deliberate attempt to sway people in, in a certain direction with using statements that you know are not correct. Okay, next question was also, should food be used as reinforcer? I'll start off and say, I think it depends on uh, conditions and parameters. Yeah, and those, those all or nothing um, questions are, are difficult to answer, right? Because sometimes, yes, context matters in, in behavior analysis. It's, it's a contextual science. So sometimes, yes, food should be used. Sometimes, no, food shouldn't be used. My, you know, obviously it depends, Joe, Joe and, John and Justin said, but again, we need to look at the long term. And, and food, you know, I think there's some problems as a long term use of as a reinforcer. And just one of them is that food associated with pleasure and the problems that can create down the road. Um, you'd like food not necessarily associated solely with pleasure that can create eating issues. Um, just as an example, using food too long gets away from more natural reinforcers. You'd like eventually for students to just love learning um, and for internalization to occur. And so you just have to look at your use of reinforcers and try to, try to look at it in a long term and how do we get to a more natural use of reinforcement, a more natural schedule and avoid the pitfalls. Okay, the next one. Why are some behavior analysts seem to be okay or even leading the way of sharing and disseminating misinformation or disinformation about the science? I'm sorry, Justin, can you read that again? Why are some behavior analysts seem to be okay or even leading the way of sharing and disseminating misinformation or disinformation about the science? I don't know, but I sure hope we can try to figure that out because if we can understand the function of that behavior, we're more likely to be able to come up with effective solutions to that. I mean, obviously we don't know. We, we can't, we're not mind readers. Um, we can speculate, but we don't know. And John said, it would be great to find that out. I'd like to believe, just don't understand the whole field in some ways. And, and I think they're sometimes maybe throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yep. Here's another one. Feels like an interview at this point. I, I struggle here regularly and have a hard time defending ABA. Need help here. 
When I defend the field, I get told I'm not listening to autistic people or live their experiences. These voices don't really reflect the clients I typically work with, but the voices are loud and create fear in parents. Also, how do you stop this misinformation and advocacy by neurodiversity movement from impacting policy? In Ontario, it's actually causing defunding of ABA. Justin, you, uh, you cited um, a, a, an excellent paper that suggested, and I, I can't remember now who the author is, uh, something like six different uh, criteria for who, who really should be, who should we be listening to here in the decision-making process? Or Joe, do you, can you? Yeah, I can, I can throw that in the, in the chat box. Yeah, they, the consumer judges. Yes. But clearly the parent of a young child with autism has to be regarded as the number one stakeholder and the voice that's most important for us to listen to. Um, you know, a, an adult with autism who has no relationship to the individual, um, it does not have the same standing um, and their voice counts for something, but it should not be the number one voice that we're listening to. It's a voice. It's a voice where it's, it can be an important voice, but we need to balance it. We need to balance is, is this person or are these people speaking for everybody? And obviously not. I mean, just to use maybe a really poor analogy, I don't think Ted Cruz or Steve Hawley speak for all politicians, let alone Republicans. They have a loud voice, but we won't want to conclude that's what politicians are like. And again, I'm not saying, by the way, I want to be clear, I was saying an adult with autism are like Ted Cruz or Steve Hawley. My point is we just can't listen to, we need to listen to all the voices. Let's hear all the voices and let's put it in perspective. Again, I want to refer to the panel I was on with, with three brilliant adults with autism, it was three. And, and they talked, I asked them what ABA was, they're talking about they hate ABA and, and they talked about it. I said, I agree with you, I don't like that. What would you do? And they described to me what they think good intervention is. And they were describing ABA. They were just describing good ABA. And they didn't understand that from their reference points. Like, I agree with everything you're saying and that's what we should be doing. We need to make that distinction, but we cannot just let a, a loud, some loud folks that deserve their voice speak for the whole group. All right, this question I will address, or Joe will address and I will go in. Um, all right, how would you decide which information is ethical to filter for your podcast? Who's the ultimate desire of appropriate? I mean, I think that's a, a wonderful, wonderful question, because uh, I think the technology age has allowed more and more people to do things like this. Uh, there's, I feel like there's a behavior analytic podcast that's popping up every day, um, and you might get different information in, in each different one. And essentially, I assume that the people in charge are the curators um, and are in control of the content. I'm sure when you have guests on, um, they're in control of, of what they say, but you're in control of the guests that you have, that you bring on. Um, but I don't think that there's one person who's the ultimate decider of what's appropriate across everything. Um, so I don't know if that 
answers the question, but I think another thing that helps guide is, is our ethical code. Uh, I think there's, there's a lot within our ethical code and, and the new uh, addition, the new change um, about how to govern ourselves on social media and all of that type of stuff um, that I think is a welcomed addition that will help um, decide um, what's appropriate information to, to put out on social media and what isn't. Okay, next question. How is there potential harm in BCBAs or behavior analysts not speaking up or addressing this anti-ABA rhetoric? If so, what are some examples of potential harm and what, your, what are your recommendations of how they should respond? Well, we talk about the silent majority, right? And if, if they remain silent, it makes it easy for people to believe that the voices that are being heard speak for a much larger group than is actually the case. Well, and uh, on the other side, I think there could be some potential harm with some BCBAs speaking up, addressing some of the anti-ABA rhetoric, um, depending on their, their training, their experience. So, I mean, if you, if you aren't well-versed in the history of the science and someone is attacking the history of the science, then you might not necessarily be well-suited to have that discussion. And you could seek out other people to gain that information or to engage in that conversation. But I think there's harm on, on either side, addressing it from an area without necessarily the knowledge or the repertoire. Um, and I think there's harm in not doing it if you have that experience, that repertoire, and that knowledge. Okay, moving on. Should PECs or, vi or visually support communication be presented as ABA? And I will, I'll take this one because um, I think Andy Bondi would say that PECs is part of a procedure under the umbrella of ABA. I think Charlotte would say that uh, visual supports are uh, a procedure under uh, the umbrella of ABA. They're just one of many procedures that can be used. This one's directed to Ron. The comment from the comment from Megan said essentially defend conversion therapy, uh, essentially defending conversion therapy, and you all know that this comment was revised. This is very misleading. Please address why it's still being included in your talk. I don't know it's been revised because I'm not looking at social media and have anything to do with ABA anymore. So I know what her first statement, what her statement was. Um, and that's what all I've got. And I've, you know, I'm glad if she revised that, I thank her for that. Um, but she did say it and it's still out there. And just the same way I looked at the post to pull it to yesterday, it's the post is there. Um, so I think you just have to be careful of what you post. And again, I, I, I think that her looking at my, what I said, I'm not sure how she extrapolated whatsoever that I was condoning conversion therapy. I don't get that. And so I think there's, I, I'm just, I wonder why that she made that jump, but I'm glad she took it down. I'm not aware of that because again, I'm not following it anymore. I also, Ron, is your phone on your desk by chance? On vibrate? Oh, it may be, yes. Yeah, because that, that's coming through as a nice, nice for everybody. I also want to say, even though it's great that people change posts, it, the thing with social media is it leaves a permanent product. And so people can screenshot and still use it. So when you put stuff like that information up there, it still can be used and people can still come in contact with it. So that's the danger of social media. I'll take the next one just because. 
and are all autistic visual learners and therefore all autistics need to be directed or maneuvered into PECs. Uh, not all autistics are visual learners to my knowledge and not all need to be moved into PECs. I think once again, it depends on the learner and their situation. I just, I, I just want to comment on that. And again, I think that's one of the mis, misunderstandings within, the, within autism, that the belief that all learners are visual. And by the way, there's auditory learners and visual learners, and all of us prefer one kind of mode. Everyone prefers more auditory or visual, but we can do both. Um, a lot of the kids we work with or adolescent adults, they may prefer more visual. But I think we need to look at why they may perform more visual and do a, a functional analysis of that. And if we just, if they're a visual learner, that doesn't mean we always use visual. We want to help them become a, an, an overall learner, become auditory learners. So I think, again, that's one of the fundamental things that when I work in schools, I have to help schools understand that you want to make students be able to use both modalities as a way to learn. And you certainly play to the strength, but you want to get to the weakness. Okay, next one. I'll take this one. Oh, I have a suggestion. If an autistic person works for you, technically they are your client and you shouldn't be manipulating them. You know, if we're talking about ethics. Um, I don't know when we had the podcast, we didn't have anyone uh, autistic adult work for us at the time. And certainly we didn't manipulate anyone to say anything in any of our podcasts. And I'm not even sure that if someone works for you, that would be considered your client. So I think this is an example of disinformation. Moving on. I, again, I got a comment on that. I'm not sure whatsoever where if someone works for you and has autistic disorder or schizophrenia or a mood disorder, where they're your client. As a psychologist, that makes no sense to me. It's certainly not in our ethical code whatsoever. Okay. This one's directed to Ron. Uh, numerous folks gave feedback on the post in the ABA group, the one about the conversion therapy. What reflection has been done to, to look inside yourself instead of placing blame outside yourself? What could you change about your own responding? Um, my wife and family give me feedback all the time on what I say and do. I, I try to carefully analyze what I do and, and look at the advantages and disadvantages. Um, I often run things by, um, when I wrote the post, by the way, I, I think I talked to five different people and had them take a look at it to make sure it was thoughtful and change my, and, and influence me. So I'm always trying to learn. I'm always reading and trying to be trained. My learning's not done. And I make mistakes for sure all the time. Um, I try to learn from those mistakes. Ron, can you please mute your mic uh, after you're done talking so I don't have to worry about it? Thanks. Um, next question. I would like ideas, articles, specific language you find helpful when teaching and helping staff and parents understand the old myths of ABA. Maybe a basic one-page sheet, sheet or cheat sheet that highlights the core concepts of ABA and what we do and don't do. Appreciate it. As you know, these uneducated people come in with an opinion and it's very difficult to help them understand that ABA is a science. Uh, let's do it, guys. Let's write it and make it available. 
I mean, we've done it with myths surrounding the UCLA Young Autism Project. I can refer people to that chapter. I think, I think John, um, it'd be helpful. Maybe it's something we can talk to CASP about and working with CASP. Yeah, I think that'd be a very valuable resource. And the more people that we can, you know, get involved to have varying perspectives, like Justin said, with CASP, um, I think that'd be a, a very useful tool for everybody to have. All right, next one, and it goes like this. It kind of feels a little like Hydra. Uh, we answer like 10 questions and 10 more come up. Um, so I don't know what's gonna happen with that, but this reminds me of my old days playing poker where I'll be up for 10 hours playing poker and that's fine with me. Um, so now that the BACB has reviewed and shut down the same material being shared in this podcast presentation offering CEs, will ethics violations continue to be made against those who host difficult conversations? Justin, I don't understand the, the reference to the BACB shutting down. There's, uh, there's certain people who have made it publicly known that they, uh, that, uh, they try, that people try to seek resolution with them as part of the code. And then when resolution could not be made, that they were reported. And they've documented this on either podcasts or, and not podcasts, uh, video kind of things, webinars, I guess or I put it in post in groups. And their contention is that the BACB um, said it was not a problem. And so that ethics, that they didn't violate ethics. And once again, for me, I feel it's a moral dilemma that maybe the BACB didn't find, find an ethics violation, maybe they did, but um, that the information that's being put out that is saying all ABA's abuse and that kind of stuff uh, does do harm to our clients. So. Might not be ethical violation, definitely um, does harm or could do potential harm. And what is the question? I, I think it's just a statement in general. Okay. All right. Yeah, and, and I, I, I don't know that we need to discuss any, any past potential resolutions or non-resolutions, but um, I think it's important to note that anytime, like our ethics code guides us that when we think that there's a potential ethics violation, that your first thing to do is to address that with the person with the perceived or the potential ethics violation. Uh, I don't know that we need to air it out in, in a public space. Those things should be handled um, just like the, our code asks us to handle them. Yes. Next one, ABA is a descriptive science. Why is a collection of scientific and factual observations about behavior and learning, which is what ABA actually is, being confused with people applying or misapplying procedures based upon these observations? I think that's a, that's a great question. And it's come up on this podcast before. Um, like there's nothing inherently dangerous about a hammer or harmful about a hammer. Um, you can use a hammer to build a house or you can use a hammer to attack another individual. Um, so if we're looking at ABA as a tool to, to change behavior as a science that will help inform how we can change socially important behavior, um, then you know some people might use that tool in a way that's helpful for lots of people and some people might use that tool in ways that are difficult or, or that are harmful to other people. Um, but I think the problem is looking at ABA as a box, as a as just a bag of tools and a bag of interventions that we can just throw at people and decontextualize our interventions. And I think that's where a lot of the rhetoric about ABA causing harm is coming from. Moving on to the next one, Joe. I've seen some social media discussion that some people believe all restraint and seclusion should be eliminated. How would the panel respond to this notion in relation to individuals who exhibit extreme 
and dangerous self-interest behavior? Well, I, I think we could answer this in, in a broader context, and that is the degree of restrictiveness of, of various intervention procedures fall on a continuum. And the farther out on that continuum you go, the more you're impinging on the right of an individual. Now, if the individual is capable of giving informed consent, um, then it's it, a much easier de decision to be made. I think we need to be careful about completely eliminating certain tools because there could be situations where it may be warranted and justified and, and potentially life-saving. I would totally agree with what John said. I think you look at positive behavior supports in their first article, they talked about using electric shock if necessary. Um, it's something you don't want to do. It's more, it's certainly a last resort, but if it's a life-threatening behavior, that may be the option. Using ECT, by the way, if you're suicidal and depressed as an adult, it, it can be an effective intervention. It's not something you want to go to. So it's looking at the circumstance and trying other alternatives, but also being clear about a titration effect and, and not wanting to always move up a little bit at a time because you can, you can reduce the effectiveness. It's something I know, John, as John said, we used physical punishment back in the 70s. We've not used physical punishment since the 70s. We've learned other ways to do it. But there may be a time or place where something has to be done like that. Well, and, and to go along the lines of the misinformation and disinformation being shared on social media, I think there, this comes up a lot in, in various sites or, or um, threads and whatnot. I think there's not a lot of behavior analysts that have a bunch of experience with extreme and dangerous self-injurious behavior, but they chime into the discussion. And so I think if you don't necessarily have that knowledge in that repertoire, seek it out um, before trying to engage in that conversation about one side or the other. Um, because I think if you don't have that information and that knowledge, all you're going to add to is the misinformation and the disinformation that's being spread. Uh, just as a comment, John, I re remind me, I mean, John and I, as I said, we worked for 15 years with deinstitutionalization. De and these were adults coming out of state hospital that were violent, had violent behaviors. Um, and listen, we had to use some restraint procedures for our safety and their safety. They posed a grave harm to themselves and others. And so it was something we were well trained at, how to deal with that, but it was one of the tools we had to use. And people wouldn't have literally survived if we didn't use those tools. So again, I think you have to be well versed in those tools and be well trained and using it, knowing if you use such procedures, it's not a treatment procedure, it's a crisis intervention mode and you're using it that way. And you've gotta be well trained in trauma and well trained in crisis and what the, the escalation, anxiety, and all those things to be able to use that. But I can't, I don't want to take that out of our toolbox. It may be necessary at some point. All right, the next one, I think easier one for us. Is it ableist to teach a child to read? Since people with and without ASD do not read, is teaching reading changing their culture by teaching them to read? And should this also be viewed as abuse and masking? I have a one word answer for that. No. I concur. And I, can, I, can I add a two word answer? Hell no. Okay. 
Joe, do you want to do a three-word answer? No, I think they summed it up nicely. That's more than three words, Joe. And I would also argue that to do so does not mean that I'm denying the essence of that illiterate individual. Okay, next one. I love everything you're saying, Dr. Leaf. I assume that means you, Ron. Um, do you think the ableism issue comes more from the language we're using in practice, high versus low, functioning, for example? I'm sorry, my old ears didn't hear the few of those words. I love everything you're saying, Dr. Leaf. Do you think the ableism issue comes from more? Comes Able, more that, it was those words, those three words. They were ableism issue. Okay. He just oh, wanted okay. to hear that again, the, the part, <laughs> I love everything you're saying, Dr. Leaf. Not, not saying it. We don't have time, Ron. No, it was the ableism. That, that was the part I couldn't hear. Go on with that from that point. It comes from the language we're using in practice, like high functioning versus low functioning, for example. I think those, those things convey are part of it, and, and maybe using terms like that contributes and is can be problematic. Um, I think the way we frame things contribute to it. I think it's not being very sensitive contributes to it. I, I think that ABA in general, the soft skills, I hate that word, uh, we're not trained, people aren't trained in the soft skills, in the clinical skills. And I think that's a huge problem. It's one of my criticisms. There was a wonderful article by, by Calhoun and Fox and, and colleagues that talked about that, about them not having behavioral artistry. I think the lack of behavioral artistry contributes to all the issues. I don't think we're good listeners. I don't think we're sensitive to the needs of, of our clients. I'm saying in general, I think that's a, a huge problem. I, I wish that in, in master's programs, clinical skills were at least a class. I know John and I teach a class at, for undergraduates and we include that in our class for undergraduates about clinical skills, the importance of that and all those soft skills. So uh, yeah, I think that's lack of soft skills and high functioning, low functioning, the terms we throw out contribute. All right, next question. I'm in a small market in Western Canada. Social media autism parent groups here are highly, highly frequented and very actively expressing an anti-ABA view. This is impacting our ability to start new clients with an autism diagnosis. Thoughts? I mean, I think we've talked about this in general. It, it, again, it's education, but it's letting them see good ABA. I mean, what we often have parents that are on the fence or districts, and it's like, let me just, let me show you what we do and what other people do and have them say that's different. So I think it's the education, but I think seeing, actual seeing is a really important component of changing. And I think it's understanding and aligning with parents and saying, yeah, I get it. That there is bad ABA. I think too many people fight if that doesn't exist. I think we need to acknowledge that, but educate and show. Okay, next. I am concerned about the statements that people are responsible for the behavior of bullies. There's a question mark, but it seems more like well, let, let, let me sidestep the responsible for part and just point out a purely pragmatic uh, approach to take. Yeah, maybe that bully shouldn't be doing what he's doing. I may not have the ability to control that individual. 
if I can learn to do something and it's easier for me to change my behavior and um, as a result of me changing my behavior, I'm less likely to get bullied, I might make that choice. I just want to stay emphatically, no matter what someone does, they don't, shouldn't be bullied. No one should be victimized whatsoever. But as John said, pragmatic, I think we need to look at that. And we need to look at what the incidence of bullying is with people with autism. And it's astronomical. And we need to help do everything we can in our toolbox to help. I'm not blaming the, 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 the student with autism whatsoever, whatsoever. Yep. Do you think the bullying issue really comes from a bigger issue that we're not inclusive in our educational and workplace setting? Probably. I think that's one factor, an important factor. I think not helping other students be sensitive is a factor. I think that the bully's own personal issues is a huge factor. There are characteristics of bullies as well documented and, and the personal issues they have and the family issues they have. So there's multiple contributions to this. Certainly the lack of acceptance um, and discussion is part of that. But recognize that those that are bullies um, have some issues, have many issues that need to be addressed. Next one. Let's be clear, the guest in the show said something about the agency and you and Joe, you mean me, uh, continued on how APF is superior to said agency because you actually use your brains and think. I think this is once again misinformation and the poster of this knows that we've talked for the last 10 years about uh, quality ABA and progressive ABA, how we're trying to teach people to do critical thinking and use their brains and not follow protocols. So I think this is a little misinformation here. Next, do you have anything offhand that you could point us to regarding the numerous research on the harm of self-stereotypy, uh, stereotypic behavior, self-stem you mentioned? Uh, Joe, I don't know if you have the articles on hand, but you could always send an email address and put that in, and we can email you those articles. There's quite a bit of them. Yeah, I can throw some of it into the, uh, have Scott work on putting it into the show notes. Anytime we talk about any papers or, or resources or references on this, it's included in um, the description for the podcast. So you can access it that way. Okay, next question. So as the Mandalorian might ask, Ron, you don't know what the Mandalorian is. It's a spin-off TV show from Star Wars. Uh, it's very popular, it has Baby Yoda. Um, ask, what is the way? What do you think you should be an effective format of discussions about ableism and other ABA criticisms to take place? Yeah, thanks for clarifying what that is because I have no clue. Um, I think healthy discussions with all parties, open, honest discussions with no, no personalization would be wonderful. Okay, next. Uh, please define misinformation clearly. I think we did that, so I'm gonna get rid of that one. Um, why is Ron's color an issue to be judged? That seems a way to avoid talking about what he said. We talked about that one. 
How do you consider that artistics are only now finding their voice because of the media and social media? We did that one. Um, I think uh, just this brief chat among four white privileged men say a lot about the problems of our field. Did that one. Please once again, look at all the people we have as guests and, uh, and uh, keynotes in our conferences. Uh, the experience that uh, Mr. R. Leaf discussed, unfortunately has been a universal problem for individuals, businesses, and organizations. Mainly misrepresentation, uh, defaming, and correspondence that could ultimately cause harm, aka reduction of medically needed services. How do you suggest we address this problem as a field given that the CDA, which stands for Communication Decency Act, gives immunity to social media platforms with limited liability? It's a paragraph. I prefer not to read a paragraph again, but I can. <laughs> that's that's such a I'm sure an outstanding question, but so complicated it's hard for me to even address it. I I kind of think this whole discussion has really been about answering that question. I agree. All right, let's go on to the next. We're we're at 68 still, guys. Um, I'm concerned at the implication of saying that because someone engages in stereotypy, they may be bullied. That is the responsibility of the bully, not the person being bullied. Is there some really progressive research coming out of there? Sorry, there is some really progressive research coming out of Hanley's lab that allows for stereotypy to occur. Are you saying this is not appropriate? I'm, I'm familiar with that research coming out of Hanley's lab. And there was a lot of research that came before that that looked at, at similar procedures that essentially was shifting um, stimulus control for one environment um, and allowing STEM to happen there uh, and eliminating STEM in the other uh, environment. And typically they're using different stimuli to signal when that is possible and when it isn't possible. And uh, I, I encourage everyone to read that research because it is valuable and we should be up to date on, on current research and trends. But I think, yes, it is the person who's bullying that is responsible. And we should, as behavior analysts, work to change the world and make it a more welcoming and accepting world. Um, but unfortunately, that's not the world we live in right now. And it's our responsibility to our clients to prepare them for the world and the environments that they're going to go into and make informed decisions when they're in those environments and work towards making the world more accepting of, you know, of everything. Um, but like John had said previously, or Ron, someone said previously, um, let's allow you to make an informed decision. So do uh, let's develop the repertoire to where if I want to twiddle my hair on the bus and know that it's not, it's, nothing's really going to happen, there's not really any contingencies there that I could contact uh, any bullying or punishment, then do it. Um, but if you have a different topography that might result in some of that, then make a decision if you want to uh, contact those contingencies or not. Um, two, two related comments. Um, Excuse one, me, can I just ask the chair, how much time does the gentleman from Long Beach have remaining? <laughs> <laughs> I would, I mean, I, I could go into a very strict, like, time's up and on. Um, I'll make it, like, this will be really short within 10 minutes. Um, I, first of all, I, I think we use the word stereotypies. I mean, we're not looking, it's really the behavior and what's the function of the behavior? And, and sometimes the function could be avoidance. Sometimes it's a really respondent behavior and it's a matter of soothing. And I think we need to look at that as well. 
and see if we can, can work on that and give a way that would be more meaningful for, the, for our clients to sue themselves or, or, or to avoid. Um, the bullying question, again, no one has a right to be bullied. I was in a school with a, with a high school in a really dangerous high school. And this student that was being bullied, he'd always walked past the, the perpetrators. And I tried to say, hey, listen, can we just go a different route for now? And he said, no, I have a right to go that way. And he has a right to go that way and he shouldn't be bullied. But the fact is he got beaten up almost every day by going that route and trying to influence him, just going a different route might be a good thing to do. Again, not that he had a right to be bullied. And I think that's somewhat my perspective. I'm succeeded. Um, I'm going to make a rule at 3.39. Uh, we will not take questions past that point because this is getting Hydra-ish, where we answer one question, three people put in more questions. Um, next question. So young children uh, not have the same basic human rights as adults? I, I, I assume that's a reference to my assertion that they need guidance, they need limits set on them. And if you consider that to be a restriction on their rights, um, so be it. I guess I'll say all children have some restriction on rights and that's what being a child is. My oldest son can't go out and drive the car if he wants to because he's six years old. Um, Alan Nerdinger wrote an article in 1901 called Humble Behaviorism. He says, science depends upon the continual checking of one's scientist's work by others. Is it possible that we are just checking ourselves, which leads to thoughtful consideration conversation and shouldn't lead to defensiveness? Possible. I think it's possible, but I think when people put memes that compare ABA to coal mine workers and say, bring it, and behavior analysts allow it to happen. Uh, it doesn't start in a place of where discussion can occur easily. Next question. How can we as behavior analysts approach social media comments about supporting or not supporting the puzzle piece? How can we respond effectively with compassion while trying to communicate how ABA works effectively? I think that's a, a wonderful question. And I, and I really like that. How can we respond effectively and with compassion while trying to communicate how ABA works effectively? I think one of the things that I've run into is, is sometimes the conversation gets to the point where it's a theoretical or conceptual disagreement as to how behavior works. Uh, behavior analysis uh, in the worldview of radical behaviorism views behavior as a product of its circumstances. Um, and that's how we view behavior and we view it as a function of behavior environment relations. Um, some people view that as not really answering why people are doing what they're doing. Um, and as a result, when behavior analysts are changing behavior, they're not getting down to the root of the problem. They're just getting someone to either mask or behave in this very specific way. And I think to me, that's a difficult area to navigate is when there's theoretical differences in why we view what we do. Uh, and I think, I don't know that there's a resolution for that, um, but there might be resolutions in terms of if, if there is a, a a joint understanding and a joint agreement as to how, how we do what we do. Next question, please. I think we already answered this one. Oh wait, I think calling out white men just because they're white and men is an attempt to gaslight and tone police them. 
about listening to what they're saying and trying to understand point presented. Thank you. Uh, have you heard of Rye Parenting? There are a lot of parents who adhere to this type of parenting. It involves recognizing the child as an individual and observing the child and following their lead. No changing, no pulling in the parent's own bias, fully allowing for agency of the child to flourish and grow. The times have changed greatly in how some people view their role as parents and view our role as analysts. Why reject them? Why not learn from about it and progress forward? Does such a view not allow for us to provide information to children, to educate them? That person wants to comment in the chat box and answer that to the panelist, he, he or she could. Next. But I don't make my neurotypical child stop engaging in something that feels good to her. She likes to spin in circles. She gets to spin in circles. I don't know. I think parents put limits on kids. My kid loves to play video games and would play Sonic or Pac-Man for hours on hours. And I have to put a limit on that. So, you know, he can go to school and stuff or run outside. Ron, you're muted. I've been quiet for a long time. Do I get like one minute? Yeah, one minute. Okay. Um, it's a matter of your child d d probably does other things besides spinning. Sometimes our kids, that's all they'll do. And because of that, they won't do other kinds of play and fun activities or, or learn those things. So it's a matter of the repetitiveness of the behavior at the exclusion of other behaviors, perhaps. All right, next question. I think a, this is a great question. Ron, please stay short on your answer. I think a huge challenge in our field is lack of knowledge ABA providers have about working with very young children, one to three, and incorporating naturalistic in interventions. How do we improve our knowledge of typical child development as a field? Did you say I could answer that? Shortly, not, I don't want to, 15 minute speech of how you used to learn this stuff as a psychologist. Yeah, I, I, I listen, I think part of the training should be about understanding normal child development. I, I think it's, it's a matter of um, training your staff if they haven't got that about normal child, child development. I think it's being around other children. I mean, the, the beauty of, of some agencies is you've got staff getting pregnant all the time having children, bring them in so you learn about them. I think it's absolutely critical. Uh, today, I was watching a session where, again, they were asking the expectation of a three-year-old was not what a three-year-old would do. They're, they're thinking of a four or five-year-old. It's like, he's three. You know, he's not going to play sustained play. Three-year-olds don't do that. And so I think it is having a really good knowledge of child development. We have to help our staff get there. It's another example of where within this broad area of the application of behavior behavior science, um, there's areas of specialty and it requires some more specialized training to be able to operate competently in that area. And so it's incumbent on us as behavior analysts to make sure that we do get that additional training, whether it's in young child development or whether it's in the way cultures that exist in organizations uh, for someone who wants to go into that application. Okay, next. As a parent and professional, I strongly suggest posting brief clips of what ABA looks like now. 
Many parents perceive ABA providers as arrogant and violate confidentiality. Most STs, PTs, OTs do not have do not advocate against ABA therapy, except that many if most clients will also receive OT and ST and collaborate with them. I received floor time training with Stanley Greenspan, RDI training, social stories, et cetera. They do have some good ideas which can be incorporated into an ABA format. Be kind and compassionate. I think the idea of clips is, is a great idea. I think the difficulty is doing that within the, the constraints that we have with our ethical code, um, you know, testimonials and posting information about current clients and all that type of stuff, notwithstanding, I do think that, that would be very valuable. And I don't know if we necessarily have to contrast it or throw in other videos. Um, it's, it's how I feel about advertisements for like Samsung? Why do you have to talk about Apple products when you're just tell me how great your your product is not to tell me about it in comparison to Apple's. Um, so like I think providing these videos and putting more in, of that information out there about what modern progressive applied behavior analysis looks like would be very valuable for everybody. Okay, next. Aren't we supposed to know and understand the history of our field? Do you think it's where our field has taken a dangerous turn in not knowing and understanding our roots and therefore our science? Yes. I, I agree. I, I'll take this one. I, I so often I see, you know, people reading one or two textbooks and not going to the literature and reading the literature. Uh, the works of Ione or Azrin or Sandy Harris or Seager Glenn. Um, and so I think it's really important to really look at, um, at uh, the literature as a whole and really dive into it and know all about ABA and autism. Next. Uh, do children not make decisions what they want to play with where, with where, who they want to be friends with? John, I'll let you answer this since it goes to you. Yeah, well, kids certainly have preferences, and, it, and we, we certainly want to pay attention to what their preferences are, but we also have to exercise some judgment on their behalf. So they might want to play with certain kids, but I'm going to make the decision as a parent if I think that that's detrimental for them to be hanging out with those kids, I'm not going to let it happen as a parent. So I'm not going to automatically honor something just because it's a preference. Ron, I want to thank you. And that picture on the bottom row, the first one on the left is Brian Hewitt. And you had the same kind of thing where you would not let me hang out with Brian Hewitt after baseball. And it's a good thing I did because, you know, he, I think, is in jail at this point. So um, you, you let me do my thing, except you made some boundaries with people who could put me, your child, at harm. So thank you. Uh, next, can you clearly define what it means by conventional ABA? I'll do this to be quick. Uh, to me, conventional ABA is ABA that is protocol driven, where we are not allowing therapists to make in the moment decisions based upon clinical judgment, and that focus on uh, not the most meaningful target behaviors. We've done a lot of research on this. I think we have talks on our website. You can come in contact with it there. And I'll also throw in references into the notes or whatever whatever the term is for that for those papers uh post progressive aba clips and contrast them with conventional clips uh we do that in talks i think they are up as part of our cu library um and in all the talks i do i do post progressive and contrast them with 
uh, with conventional. I agree that posting scare screenshots are a form of bullying, especially when there's no conversation or opportunity for dialogue with the poster. For Reekers and, and conversation therapy, have you discussed the impact with marginalized population identify, whose identity is being attacked? I personally see value in unifying with the autistic population. I think we would all agree, isn't shaping the best method in which to do this and means listening and being uncomfortable and accepting criticism, criticism sorry, criticisms with how service has been delivered. Absolutely. I think we need to listen to all voices. I think we need to listen to criticism. I think we need to understand that. So yeah, of course. yes, I agree. Okay, down to the 50s, this is nice. Why do you think ABA gets pigeonholed as abusive for reasons such as the fact that we use reinforcement and shape behaviors? Yet other professions that also shape behaviors and use reinforcement such as teachers, psychologists, et cetera, don't get the same backlash. I don't really understand why ABA is treated differently than other branches um, of psychology, but I think part of it is due to a lack of understanding of the basic principle of reinforcement is, I mean, people make a moral judgment about the use of reinforcement strategies, but the reality is we are all under the influence of reinforcement, whether we like it or don't like it. And the most empowering thing that we can do is come to understand how reinforcement affects us um, so that we can accomplish what we want to accomplish. It'd be like being against the law of gravity right? We, we, we don't make moral judgments about the law of gravity. It's just there. So don't fight it. Learn to work with it. There's, there, this takes me back to a controversy in the 70s about ABA. And then one of the picketing was around this kind of issue. And it was that, that ABA was changing behavior and using reinforcement. And it was manipulative, etc. And there's a whole discussion around that. And I think people point out that other psychology, they're also trying to change behavior too. It's maybe that ABA is just more obvious and not as subtle about it. And there was an article that done about Rogerian therapy and I think it was Truax wrote an article looking at Rogerian therapy because it was thought to be very compassionate and listening and not change, accepting total acceptance of their behavior. And Rogers said, that's not true. That's not what he's doing. He's just got a better way to deal with it. And Truex did a study that showed that Rogers was an incredible shaper. He would just take their words, reflect it back, but change one word or the free frame in a certain way. And that he indeed was also changing behaviors and shaping behaviors. He just was better at it. Um, yes, I think all, all mental health professionals, they're attempting to help people and changed their behaviors. All right, there's two questions that I see that are similar, so I will ask them both and I'll give it to Joe. Uh, JRC is literally doing electric shock today. Do you feel there's a place for the use of electric shock at JRC in ABA today? Well, I mean, I, I don't work for the JRC. I've never worked for the JRC. I've toured um, and I've read a lot of, of the research behind it. Um, so I feel somewhat informed, but I, I don't think that I'm in a position to speak what they should or should not be doing based on the clientele that they have. 
Can you just give the full name of the institution you're talking Judge, about? Judge Rothenberg Center. Judge Rotenberg Center. Uh, Rotenberg Center in Massachusetts, I believe. I, on hey, listen, Matt Israel, unfortunately, was a, was Skinner's I think last student, um, who took his principles and I think used them abusively, um, and got a court order to be able to use them. He was out in California for a while, and California luckily was able to shut him down and and sue him. Um, you know, all I can say, I don't know what they're doing currently. I know we used to get clients from his center. And there was absolutely no generalization whatsoever. And they were probably the most difficult clientele I've ever worked with um, because of what happened there. I don't know what's happening today. So I'm, I'm talking about, you know, 30 years ago um, and the work he was doing back then. Do I think electric shock has a place? I'm sure there are circumstance, a circumstance out there where it does have a place. And I also wanted, again, once again, differentiate that from ECT that's used in depression and su suicidal depression. Okay, next. I would suggest not to dwell on the past, sh past show what you do now. I think we try attempt to show what we do now, but we try to also educate about the past so people don't get uh, swayed, uh, uh, persuaded their opinion differently. Uh, next, can people agree to stay positive we're here to move forward and make this world a better place. I think we try uh, to stay positive. I think it's pretty difficult when we hear uh, families not getting services because of what BCBAs are saying or allowing on their social media pages. Next, uh, Mary Jane addressed this in a previous rant. I've also been implementing progressive ABA for 20 years. That's great to hear. Uh, those standards were the same for teachers and psychs and doctors as well. In that time, it seems as if the fields get forgiveness and understanding and ABA does not. Why do you think we don't get forgiveness? We don't know. Next. I'm not comfortable saying that because of the historical context, something was not abusive. As a psychologist, you should know that abuse is defined by the person that experienced the abuse. I'm sorry that in the past you were part of that intervention. But is it okay to say I abuse people sometimes and now I'm comfortable with that? I think displaying the humility will go a very long, on caps, way to people you're speaking to and the consumers of our science. I think it just does not sit well when people are defensive of these facts and instead say we know better and now we will do better. I'm willing to give that some more thought. Should someone who slaps children be sent to jail? Ron, you want to go? I, I guess first I want to change. John said slap, what we used at UCLA. I think slap conveys, can convey on the face. Um, and we didn't do that. Um, we would hit children on the thigh. I'm not saying that's, you know, something we would do today whatsoever. Um, and so, but I just want to make that distinction. Um, I think, I, again, I, I think that I, I can't answer that question whether someone slaps should go to jail or not. I think it depends on, on you know, many circumstances. 
you know, within that. And I, I can't speculate on that. I'd say more times than not, yeah, it should be something that I don't know, go to jail, but it should be something that should be prosecuted and reported in most all circumstances. You, you know, you might, someone might say, well, what circumstances could that ever be okay? Well, if a child is in complete danger, and again, not on the face, but in complete danger, and it's the only way you can potentially stop it, um, you, that it may be something you'd consider. But again, it'd be very unusual, unusual circumstances. All right, next question. Do you all understand when critics say ABA is abuse, they aren't just referring to physical abuse? Yes, we do. The targets that are being chosen and researched are an attempt to normalize autistic children is also a big part of the abuse concern. Same as the Reekers and Lobos article on gender behavior. So this poster is saying is the concern about recovery or indistinguishable or cure that occurred at, in the UCLA Young Autism Project and that that was abusive. No, I don't, I don't consider it abusive. I think it's a gross misrepresentation of, of what we're aiming to do. We're not trying to make them into something that they're not. We're just trying to give them options. I don't consider that abuse. Okay, next. Ron, unless you wanted to ask, answer. Nope. Yes, there are so many different therapies based on the techniques of ABA, yet you would never admit or state that. That is a huge problem in our field. I mean, for, for me as a behavior analyst, if, if there's behavior change that's occurring, then the underlying principles of behavior analysis are being employed. So if there's any therapy that changes behavior, that could be construed as behavior analysis if there is actual behavior change there. If you are, if you go that radical with radical behaviorism, any therapy changing behavior is behavior analysis or could be viewed as that. I don't know if it's ABA, um, but it's using the principles to change behavior. Joe, wouldn't it be more, possibly more accurate to say there's contingencies operating, but not necessarily analysis? Yes, yes, absolutely. All right, next question. How do we start the process of making the definitions? I feel like I've heard participating in conversations like this many times and how we start making actions. I think these conversations are leading to actions and I think organizations are gonna start taking actions. In addition to research. Yep. I, just um, down, I, I think we write articles and chapters and books to try to clarify this. This one's directed to you, John. Check out compassionate, check out compassionate listening and nonviolent communication. Another research on dialogue between conflicting groups. The research is pretty solid. Arguing, educating is not effective. Engaging using Socratic method and being curious and understanding the values and history of the person is effective. I will all say based on this post um, that the people who have done this approach in the Facebook pages are the ones where parents are coming once again to us and saying they're no longer gonna get behavioral intervention. So you might get good dialogue between two people in those Facebook groups, but um, it's doing potential harm to kids. I, I think it, it, part of the scientific approach is evaluating the quality of the evidence 
And I, I, I think it's important that we pay attention to that. There are people who believe that they have evidence behind the things that they're doing, but if you look carefully at the methodology that's being used, we can't have very much confidence in the conclusions that people are drawing from that. So you'll have people who call themselves clinicians or scientists who will come to different conclusions, but let's be, people need to be clear about the rigor of the methodology behind the evidence that's being evaluated. All right, and so this concludes our two. Joe, give the closing word for our two is? The, uh, the um, Facebook. Facebook.